Good morning. We've been on this journey through the book of Mark that Clint started just a couple weeks ago. And this series, we, ha- we have an emphasis on stories, all right? Bible commentators believe that Mark's gospel uh, was written for a Roman audience. And while Matthew's gospel spa- uh, pays special attention to genealogies and Jewish prophecy, Luke's gospel pays a lot of attention to Jesus' teaching and his philosophy. The Romans weren't interested in those things. And Mark's gospel is perhaps the most densely populated with stories because it's written to an audience that's mostly concerned with what Jesus did. Not not Jewish history, not Jesus Jesus' teaching so much, but what he did. And so we have this gospel that's densely populated with straightforward narrative, with stories. And stories are powerful. They disarm our opposition to new ideas and they engage our imagination and our emotions. Stories are beautiful and compelling. Stories invite us to leave behind our preconceptions about what is possible and focus on what happened. And that's why our teaching for our students on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings is oriented around stories. On Wednesday nights, we're watching the drama series, The Chosen, and we're seeing how stories recorded in the Gospels are portrayed by Christian actors and artists. And on Sunday mornings, we've been narrating the story of the Bible, recognizing that the Bible is not first and foremost a collection of abstract principles and teachings about God. And it's not even stories about ethical behavior, but rather it's a story of who God is and what he's done. It's a story full of different characters, and the main character is Jesus. His life demonstrates the kinds of characters we're supposed to exhibit, the kind of characters we're supposed to become, and the kind of Christian character we're supposed to exhibit. The Gospel of Mark, like the rest of the Bible, tells Jesus' story. So let's review Mark's story up to this point. The only time Mark quotes the Old Testament prophets is in his first sentence when he quotes Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark then demonstrates that John the Baptist was the messenger that was sent ahead of Jesus, preparing the way for him in the wilderness. Jesus then, as you know, came to be baptized by John, and Mark tells us that heaven was torn open. The Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At this point, Jesus had not begun his public ministry. Before Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, before he called his first disciples, before he turned water into wine, before he healed anyone, before he gave his life on the cross, Jesus received the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the affirmation of his Father. And Jesus needed them. Because immediately, the very Spirit that anointed him drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. The Spirit's presence and the Father's love is what sustained him through trial and empowered him for his ministry. And that's what leads us to today's text. So hear the word of God according to Mark in chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, 
he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, open the eyes of our hearts that we may hear your word and understand and do your will. For we are sojourners on the earth. We want to see you, Jesus. Don't hide your commands from us, but open our eyes that we may perceive the wonders of your law. Speak to us the hidden and secret things of your wisdom. On you do we set our hope, O God, that you enlighten our minds and our understanding with the light of your knowledge, not only to cherish those things which are written, but to do them. I pray that as I share my story, you would show us yours and our places in it. I pray that in this time, we would be nourished for our journeys as we feast on your word. For you are the enlightenment of those who lie in darkness. And from you comes every good deed and every gift. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So when Clint first approached me about speaking this morning, we looked at the text and saw that the themes of calling and following lend the perfect opportunity to share a bit about my calling and my journey. Now this time that I get to speak to you is not about me. It's about what God has done in my life, and I hope that it helps us, it helps shed light on what's happening in this story, and then we can talk about that. So as I was preparing to speak this morning, I was also writing an essay for my seminary application, and the assignment was to recount my life story, and I felt God challenging me to go back to the drawing board, archive the version of my story that, that was so familiar and stale and rehearsed, and craft something fresh that reflects what God's taught me about my story more recently. So I know I've shared bits and pieces with you uh, over the last four years of serving here, but I want to go back to the beginning of my story and share more about the key moments and struggles along the way. Then we'll talk about the story in today's text and connect everything to what we're doing in our youth ministry today and what it looks like for our students and for everyone to follow God's call. So my story begins when I was a young child. My parents taught me how to pray. For many of us here, that's, that's the case. My parents taught me how to pray, to confess sin, to forgive, and to seek forgiveness. And it was in that rhythm of prayer to a God I had not chosen myself that I came to know the God that had chosen me. Christian faith had always been a central part of my family, but one day I realized that if the God of the Bible is real, he desires a personal relationship with me. So... I went to our family bathroom, closed the door, and prayed a sincere prayer of forgiveness and trust. I give myself to him now largely because my parents had given me to him from birth. And if that story resonates with you, if maybe you feel like you're only a believer because your families gave you to Jesus, your families brought you to church, that is not the worst thing in the world, okay, for your parents to give you to God. A lot of people in this world don't have that experience. It's not a bad thing to have your parents' faith. That's something that, that's strong and rich and you can learn from and you can grow in. But it wasn't smooth sailing right away. A voice in my head said, maybe it didn't work. You don't feel any different, do you? Maybe you said it wrong. 
Maybe you need to go back and ask God again. I shared this with my mother. This will be a theme. I shared this with my mother who reminded me that I'm not saved by praying the perfect words, but by Jesus' perfect work. I'm not saved by my ability to convince God to forgive me and save me. God loves to forgive and he wants everyone to be saved, which is why he sent his son in the first place. I'm saved, rather, by choosing and trusting in him and the work he's already done for me. It's a gift that he gives, not something I have to beg him for. For me, that was not a one-time decision. That's the decision I'm faced with every day. Will I choose and trust in Jesus to save me or something else? Will I try to convince God to forgive me or trust that in Christ he already has? Being once saved may mean being always saved, but being once saved and being always saved are not the same thing. I believe that I was perfectly and completely forgiven and saved in that moment. But God had begun his work to save me before the foundation of the world. And he's begun that work in you too. And that work continues to this day. I believe that I was saved when Jesus died on that cross and rose from the dead. And I believe I was saved many different times since. I look forward to how God will continue to save me from sin in this life and ultimately save me for life with him in the next. And just as there are many moments of salvation, there are many moments of calling and many moments of following. Every day we're faced with that call. Every day we're faced with that choice uh, to follow. So a few years later, I was in my childhood bedroom and I was, supposed to, <laughs> I was supposed to be cleaning it. You know how that goes. But I was telling the story of God's, of Christ's passion to an imaginary audience and my imagination became the audience. I grasped as if for the first time the meaning of Jesus' sacrifice and his love for me displayed on the cross in that childhood bedroom. And that may have been the first time I felt God's spirit. It was as if God was saying, you get it now. You get it now. Now I want you to go tell others. Not long after, as, as I was praying for forgiveness one day, I don't remember what I'd done, but I was praying for forgiveness and, and God used that moment of unworthiness, that moment of sorrow that moment of guilt and shame, to impress upon me his call to serve him in ministry. That's a theme throughout Scripture, and we'll talk about it in a bit. But since then, different life experiences have shown me more fully what it means that Jesus died for my sin and that I've been washed, sanctified, and justified in his name and by his blood. What I've earned through sin is death, but what I've received through God's grace is eternal life. And that's the gift that he offers to each and every one of us. Throughout my childhood, my calling seemed like something that would only be realized when I became an adult. But when I attended my first teen pack leadership school at the age of 14, the example of other teenagers serving in ministry showed me that my calling could and should be realized even in my adolescence. I realized that my growing interest in music was a gift from God to be used in his service. And so I began using music to illuminate the gospel and lead other believers in worship. Later that year, I decided to offer a time of worship and encouragement for junior and senior high students. And as I was preparing, I came across this verse in James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Immediately, I had second thoughts about what I was doing. Was, was God telling me that I wasn't supposed to teach this class? I wasn't supposed to offer this time of, of devotionals. And again, 
I shared my hesitation with my mom, who was always there, and she explained to me that James wasn't saying that no one should teach. She knew my calling, and after all, Paul's letters are replete with instructions to Timothy to preach the word, to teach. So what is James saying here? These words come directly after James' discourse on faith and works, and just as James wished to show that faith without works is dead, just like we sang in that song five minutes ago, his warning here was only that teachers are not judged only by what they teach, but by whether they live what they teach. He then challenges the wise and understanding among his audience to prove themselves by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom, the wisdom of heaven, which is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So God showed me in that moment that the best teaching I can give comes from living in wisdom. And that's been my primary calling ever since. It's, it's, not, it's not to go up on a platform and, and teach. It's not been a call to go present the word of God to people. It's to live the word of God for people. So when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, I was nominated as a gubernatorial candidate for my state chapter of Teen Pack Leadership Schools, which is a, a national organization for Christian students. And I told my brother, Grant, that I would manage his campaign, but instead I found myself running against him. There was an apology. There may have been a shrug and said, I, I guess God had other plans, but I was, at that time, I was the beloved nerdy kid who wore a bow tie every day. I still wish I was that beloved nerdy kid that wore a bow tie every day. And when I had learned how to tie a bow tie a few years prior, I realized that some of the steps, if you've ever tied a bow tie, maybe you know what I'm talking about, but some of the steps symbolize the story of the gospel for me. And so the night before the election, I felt like God was telling me, hey, I showed you that. I know you don't know all the right words, but I want you to share that with these students. And as I shared the story of the gospel with my peers using a bow tie, just a piece of fabric, bright and colorful piece of fabric, God supplied the words. God supplied the words. It didn't feel like much sharing the gospel with a room of Christian students, but I did it. I didn't win the election, but I'd used my platform to communicate the good news to a room of 100 teenagers. Later that year, I was selected by Teen Pack Leadership Schools to serve on the Illinois staff team for the next season. And that was probably my first official experience in ministry, and it really shaped how I serve in ministry today. Uh, that was a very formative time in my life. But that's not the end of the story. Two years later, I was invited to serve as staff a second time. And as the week came to a close, I sought out my small group of students that we debriefed with every night, and I offered to pray with each of them before we all went our separate ways at the end of the camp. And I asked one student, and he responded. I, I still remember the feeling when I heard his response. It was so weird and unexpected. He was like, do we have to? And I was like, well, come on, bro. Like, I just want to pray with you. And so finally, he's like, okay. So um, he agreed, and I prayed, I prayed right there with him in the hallway. And after I finished, he turned to me, and he said, two years ago, when you were running for governor, you used your bow tie to explain the gospel. I put my faith in Jesus for the first time because of that presentation. When I came here, my friends thought I was literally crazy, literally crazy, and I started believing them. But you treated me like I was normal, 
Thank you. I had no idea that God would use a little presentation with a bow tie to bring one of my peers closer to him. I had no idea. And it was two years before I even learned what God had done through it. It was two years. I still remember the feeling I got when I had that conversation with him. I was like, wow, wow, I didn't do that. I did not do that. That was God. And I'll be honest, if you've ever worked at a camp, you know that by day four or five, you feel horrible. You're so exhausted. And I just remember that was one of those nights. I was so exhausted. I remember stacking chairs and it was like, and in that moment, I remember like my whole energy changed. My whole energy changed. I was, I was suddenly bouncing off the walls because I realized that God was working in what we were doing. Then in my adolescence, as I, as I grew more, the innocence of childhood passed, and, and many of us can relate to this, and I became painfully aware of my sin, my guilt, and my shame. I continued to lead my friends and my peers, but on the inside, I didn't feel worthy. I did not feel worthy. And I was sure that if they could see who I was when they weren't looking, they wouldn't love or respect me anymore. I began to believe that God, who did see who I was when others weren't looking, could not truly love me as I was either. So I presented to God and to others a version of me that I thought was lovable. Sadly, this perfect version of me didn't exist, and my real self was hiding inside, too ashamed to embrace the love of God and the genuine love of others. Then God led me to a book by Brennan Manning, Abba's Child. And as I read it, I experienced the power of God's love in a new way. And again, it's not that it was the first time I'd experienced God's love. We, we all experience God's love multiple times in our life, but sometimes we need reminders. And sometimes we need reminders of the reminders because we forget. Because sometimes we, we lose faith in, in the power of God's love. And so I read the book and I experienced his love and realized that his love is not obstructed by my sin. God doesn't love me in spite of my sin. He loves me with my sin. My sin cannot keep his love away. I don't have to hide my sin from him. This love enables me to truly love God and truly receive his love for me. I can truly love myself and truly love those around me because of that love. Love no longer has strings attached. It's this love that meeting me in my sin frees me from that sin. It is this love that empowers me to lead other, even sinful, broken people like myself in humble adoration and repentance before God. So as I neared the end of high school, aware that I would be soon entering college, I met with an associate pastor at my church in Belleville and asked him, how should I prepare for vocational ministry? He told me something I was surprised to discover, that many would-be pastors only study ministry and biblical studies in college. And so... Later, they find themselves only able to approach ministry from that one perspective, and frequently, they lack the training to support themselves in another trade or career should that be necessary. And so as I was thinking about all this, I was like, well, the only other thing that I'd considered studying at that point was writing. And while I love writing, I hate writing classes. So that was a no-go for me. That was a hard pass for me. Mariah is squirming in her seats because she loves writing classes, and... She probably is looking at me and like, wow, you just passed up an opportunity to have the best major ever. And that's why she's doing what she's doing. And I'm doing what I'm doing. So at that point, I'd taken music lessons since I was eight. And I was only beginning 
to develop a true interest in music at 17. And at the time, I played six instruments and was part of four choirs. So music was slowly graduating from a hobby to an obsession. <laughs> kind of a problem. It's, it's kind of an expensive hobby. Maybe, maybe not as expensive as golf, Mike, but it, it's up there. And so my passion for using music to lead others in worship had grown since that experience in Teen Pack Leadership Schools. And it was around that time that I felt called to study music in college. But picking a school wasn't easy. Soon, it was October, 10 months uh, before I would begin college, and I had not visited or applied to a single school. So while my family and I were on a road trip, my mom compiled a Microsoft Excel worksheet that was populated with the top 20 Christian colleges in the Midwest. And I had to whittle them down, and, and I ended up applying to nine of them. That was the most stressful of my time, stressful time of my life at that point. Like, I had not experienced that much stress up until that point when I was trying to keep up with nine college applications and auditions and everything that went along with it. I've had more stressful times since, so <laughs> it gets better, but that was, that was the most stressful time of my life at that point. And as I was juggling all the invitations to audition and visit campuses, I was faced with two fears. The fear of visiting and auditioning at a strange place and the opposite fear of missing out on something by not auditioning. And as I was handling all the stress and wondering what I should do, you know, which of these schools should I go to, I didn't know which fear to listen to. Which fear should I let motivate me? But in that stressful time, God gave me peace about not auditioning at every school. And he, he showed me that the fear of missing out is from the enemy. The fear of missing out is from the enemy. God leads us with peace, not fear. And so really to be motivated by either one of those fears was, was a lose-lose situation because God motivates us with peace. He says, this is the way, walk in it. Don't, don't be motivated simply because you're afraid that if you don't do something, you'll miss out on something that God has for you. God's not trying to motivate us with fear. So I didn't audition at every school. As a side note, and this is for all you parents and would-be college students in the room, it also helped that some of the schools cost $57,000 a year, and I just didn't have that kind of money, and it didn't seem like the community I'd wanna be a part of. So when in doubt, look at the price tag. I'm just, we're gonna leave it there. Eventually, I whittled down the list to three schools uh, where I actually auditioned. And, of the three, Indiana Wesleyan University offered the best scholarships, academic programs, choir program, faculty, housing, dining, all the things that were on my list. They offered the best, and so it seemed like the obvious choice to me, and in many ways it was. I signed the papers stating that I would enroll there and enroll at the John Wesley Honors College to study music composition and honors humanities. And a week later, the school awarded me an additional $5,000 scholarship. And I remember in that moment, nowadays $5,000 is a lot of money, but it's not maybe as much money as I thought it was then, but it's a lot of money. God led me <laughs> to Indiana Wesleyan University, and he provided the extra scholarship money to affirm my decision. That was a really formative time in my life, and I realized that God was endorsing my decision to go there. He was saying, hey, this is where I want you, and as a reward for walking in obedience, I'm going to show you how I can provide for you along the way. College was hard. I learned more about myself than about anything else. College students, youth, when you go to college, you will learn more about yourself, hopefully, than about anything else. 
I developed new habits and struggles. I experienced the loss of a childhood friend. I grew tired and weary. Throughout that first year, Isaiah 40, uh, 28 through 31, kept appearing in worship services and personal Bible study and encouragement from a professor and kind of became my life verse without my permission, if you know how that works. And it says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Yeah, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. In my first semester, one of my assignments was to write a Christian virtue paper defining and applying the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. And in my studies, I realized that hope is not a kind of wishful thinking. It's not even a merely an earnest desire. It's not like, oh, I really hope this happens. But it's an awareness of reality founded upon the promises of God. When I returned home from that first year of college, I had no idea what I would do over the summer. I wanted to work at a church, but I hadn't found any internships. So no sooner had I walked through the doors of my house that my mom said, I think I found a job for you. And uh, as some of you know, my father uh, actually attended Hope Church uh, when he first moved to St. Louis back in 1986. Did it get the year right? Yeah, yeah. And that's how they got acquainted with David and Stephanie Albertson and, and Brian Nelson and Dave Booker and, and a few others. And so at this time in my story, Stephanie Albertson had told my mom, hey, Hope Church's uh, worship pastor is retiring, and we're going to be looking for a replacement. And anyway, so a few days later, Terry Talley called and asked me some questions about my experience leading worship. And that Sunday, I came to visit Hope Church for the first time. And after an interview with Pastor Clint and Steve Arthur and another interview with the elders and Dave Booker, Hope Church offered me a role as part-time summer worship intern. And that's kind of where our stories intersect. That was in summer of 2018. And on my first Sunday attending Hope Church, after that initial visit, I sensed that God was telling me, this isn't going to be a one-time partnership. You served in places like that. They were, they were just like a blip on your timeline, but, but this isn't going to be like that. I didn't know that Hope Church would invite me back for two summers after that. I was praying with you that you would find a permanent worship leader, and, and now you have one. Connor's here. So, Connor, I've been praying for you. And I didn't know that Hope Church would be hiring a youth ministry director three years later. But I sensed God telling me that somehow Hope Church uh, was going to stick around. In January of 2021, as you know, Hope Church was seeking a part-time associate pastor overseeing youth ministries, and my graduation was quickly approaching, and I felt God nudging me to express interest in the position. So I emailed Steve, and I communicated my desire to serve in that capacity. And in February, I completed the new application. In March, I was interviewed by the search committee. In April, I was invited to visit the youth ministry on a Wednesday night. And on May 12, I finally came to Mellis Chapel, and I led our students in a game and a lesson about the body of Christ. And Lydia and Becca uh, were there, and they gave me a standing ovation. It was great. And on May 14, I was invited to an interview with the elders. And on May 17, 
This is just last year. I was offered the position of part-time youth director at Hope Church. I began work on May 25. It was a Wednesday. First time coming on a Wednesday morning. It was so weird, and now it's normal. And I started preparations for summer camp the very next day. We drove down to Camp Clover Point, and we got right to work. So yay for fire hydrants. When I came for an interview on May 17, I remember Terry Talley uh, asking me, well, the last three summers, we hired you to do music. So why do you want to work with our youth? Aren't you the music guy? Aren't you the music guy? And I explained how throughout high school, my community back home was well aware that I was called to ministry. And so they had a similar reaction to my decision to study music. They're like, weren't you going to be a pastor? Aren't you the pastor guy? So for me, music has never been the end goal. It's always been a part of my calling, but not the entirety of my calling. My decision to study music came from a desire to use and refine whatever gifts God had given me. My decision to study music composition came from a desire to pursue a major that would, musically speaking, challenge me most and equip me to create music that glorifies God and leads others to glorify Him. And youth ministry, likewise, has never been the end goal. I'm not wrapping up my calling in any one of these things. Being a senior pastor has never been the end goal. My goal has been to use my gifts wherever I am and wherever God calls me. My passion, what I want to see, is the church becoming the bride and family of God that he intended all along. I want to see churches structure their lives and services to receive God in his word and truly glorify him alone. I want to see children and teenagers and 20-somethings living in the freedom and power that Jesus gives. I want them to receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know him better. I want the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened in order that they may know the hope to which he's called them, the glorious inheritance that he has for them, and the riches of his power, the mighty, incomparably great power for us who believe. I don't care how God uses me to bring that about. I want God to have my blank check that says, God, you can write whatever you want on this check, to have of me whatever he desires. In Luke 12, 48, which says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I believe that I've been given much. I believe that each one of us here has been given much. And so I want to be faithful with what I've been given. I don't want to be like Jonah who is willing to be God's prophet, but not to go where he sent. I love the simple way that Watchman Nee put it in his book, The Normal Christian Life. He says, I don't consecrate myself to be a missionary or a preacher. I consecrate myself to God to do his will where I am, be it in school, office, kitchen, or wherever he may in his wisdom send me. So as we look at today's text, we're going to talk about four things that Jesus says at the beginning of his public ministry. First, he says, repent. Then he says, believe the good news. Come follow me. And finally, I will send you out to fish for people. So what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to repent? The Greek word for repentance literally means to think or feel again, to think or feel a second time. This sentence, repent and believe the good news, these words that Jesus said have a lot to do with where we find ourselves in the Christian calendar today. This past Wednesday, we entered the liturgical season of Lent, and now the observation of Lent is not a practice that's prescribed in the New Testament. It's not even corresponding to any of the Old Testament feasts. 
So why should we as New Testament believers observe Lent? Why should we care about Lent? Well, the Christian celebration of Easter arose as a new covenant fulfillment, right, of, of the Passover in the Old Testament. So at Easter, we celebrate what Passover pointed to all along. And Jewish believers, even today, they set aside time before Passover to prepare. And so likewise, we as Christians, Christians around the world, set aside the season of Lent to prepare for Easter. When preparing for the Passover, Jews today search their house and remove all the leavening, or, or in Hebrew, the chametz, that they can find. They even search medicines. I didn't know this until last year. They even search medicines, cosmetics, pet foods, and they clean their kitchen appliances and sinks. They're that thorough. I had no idea. I thought it was just like, get rid of the yeast, you know? But it's like super thorough. Then they take the chametz and they burn it. As Christians, Lent is an invitation to us to prepare for the celebration of Easter and what theologians call the Paschal Mystery, Jesus' suffering, death, resurrection, and glorification, by searching our hearts and removing from them anything that gets in the way of our relationship with God. All the things that we hope will, like leavening, lift us and give us life, we remove so that we can experience God's power alone raising us to life. On Ash Wednesday, Christians around the world begin a season of abstinence leading to Easter, and they receive a cross of ashes on their foreheads as the words are spoken, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, for many of us, especially if we grew up in a Catholic background, Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent that follows may seem fraught with legalism, hypocrisy, and morbidity, but that's not what they're supposed to be. Every year, the ashes used to anoint believers on Ash Wednesday are made by incinerating the palm fronds from the previous year's Palm Sunday. Just as fire consumes and changes the fronds into ash, Ash Wednesday and Lent are invitations for us to let the Holy Spirit consume and change our hearts. Ash Wednesday teaches us that in order for Jesus to be our King and our Hosanna Savior, our uplifted palms must become the ashes of repentance. Ash Wednesday and Lent exist not primarily for us to contemplate physical death, but for us to embrace the kind of death that Paul talks about in Romans 7 and 8, the mortification of our sin. He writes, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Ash Wednesday in Lent is not merely a time for contemplating our mortality, but in light of that mortality, for dying to sin and causing sin to die in us so that we can live the life that Christ rose to give. So when Jesus says to repent, he doesn't come like Jonah in the Old Testament with a message of doomsday. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Overthrown. He doesn't come that way. He says, repent and believe the good news. It's not a message of doom that he's bringing. Jesus is not urging people to repent in light of God's wrath, but in light of his mercy. The psalmist writes, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared in Psalm 134. Jesus wants good news of mercy to motivate us to repentance, not bad news of judgment. So what is the good news? At this point in Jesus' ministry, he'd not said anything to indicate the specific nature of the good news. His audience could only trace his announcement of the kingdom of God to Old Testament prophecies 
regarding the coming Messiah, or wait in anticipation for what Jesus would say and do. Now, sometimes we have to wait for the good news. Jesus' first followers had to wait for the good news. Even while Jesus was preaching it, they didn't understand the good news until he rose again. So Lent is a season of this kind of waiting. The word Lent comes from English and German and Dutch words that mean springtime or, or lengthening, long. And of course, Lent takes place in the springtime when the daylight is growing longer. The idea is that as the days are growing longer, as the daylight is growing longer, we are growing in anticipation. We're growing in longing. We're growing in longing for the day when Jesus will ultimately free us from sin. And as we feel the sin inside us dying, we see things around us coming to life, pointing us to the day that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom and the glory of the children of God. So when Jesus first called Simon, Andrew, James, and John in this passage, they had no idea what the good news was. But we know from Luke's version of the story that they just had a life-changing experience with Jesus. As Jesus was teaching, so many people had gathered that those on the edges and in the back were having difficulty hearing him. And it wouldn't be long before Jesus was standing in the water. So these four men, these four fishermen, had just returned to shore after fishing all night long with nothing to show for it. And Jesus asked if they would do him a favor. He got in Simon's boat and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he taught from the boat, using the water to carry his voice to everyone on the shore so that everyone could hear. At the end of his sermon, Jesus turned to Simon and he asked him to go out to some deep water and cast the nets that they had been putting away. They'd been cleaning up. It was morning, it was time, third shift was over, they were gonna go back home and clean up and go to bed, go back home and go to bed. And Jesus is saying, okay, I know you just cleaned those nets, but do me a favor, put them back in the water. Try to cast them out one more time. Simon, as, as we would understand, Simon protested, but eventually he agreed to cast the nets. When he did, as you know, they caught so many fish that their nets began to break and two boats began to sink. It's a lot of fish. All Simon could think of was, in that moment, was how unworthy he was. That's something that I can relate to. That's something I asked our youth students that they can relate to. Have you ever been in this moment that you see God's power and then all you feel is unworthiness? That's what I felt in that bedroom when I was seven years old. I was so ashamed. And yet, here is the very moment that Jesus says, come, follow me. From now on, you will fish for people. God turns this moment of shame and unworthiness and he turns it into a moment of calling and commissioning. God uses us even when we feel unworthy. Now, when Jesus said, come and I'll make you fishers of men, they likely had no idea what that meant. All they knew was that they had fished all night and caught nothing when some construction worker from Nazareth sent more fish than they could handle. They realized that fishing had nothing for them, that fishing could not satisfy them, and that if this construction worker could do with people what he did with fish, then following him was where true life, true fulfillment, true purpose are found. Don't miss that. Following him is where true life, true purpose, and true fulfillment are found. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? First of all, I think 
one of the implications of Jesus' words is that following him means going out to fish for people. I don't think you can come and follow Jesus without doing the second thing, which is to go out and fish people, to obey him as he sends us out. But Jesus had other things to say about following him. Some of these may seem familiar. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Or, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Luke's gospel says, deny themselves daily and take up their cross and follow him. He's talking about this daily death. Or, if you want to be perfect, go, sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So following Jesus means going where he goes, living the life of sacrifice that he lived. And this may seem like we're faced with all the negatives of following Jesus, all the things that we're giving up, all the things that are challenging about following Jesus. But Jesus also said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Following Jesus means following him now. Don't put it off. If you're in your teens, God wants you to experience the light of life now. If you're in your 20s, God wants you to experience the light of life now. If you haven't begun following Jesus, God wants you to experience the light of life now. We aren't guaranteed tomorrow and, and ever, throughout life, there are all these different opportunities to follow. Why not start now? Why not start now? Maybe you're young and you don't, you don't know what to do with your life. You know, I knew since I was four kind of what it would look like, but that didn't make it easy. Even though I knew what it was like, maybe you're like me, even though you knew what it's like, maybe you don't know how to get there. Or maybe you know what God's calling you to do even today, and you don't know what it's look, gonna look like to get there. And so what I would have to say to you is, we're faced with this question. How do you follow when the path is unclear? How do you follow when you can't see Jesus literally walking in front of you, leading you to that next job or that, that next appointment? Following Jesus isn't all about the big moments in life. If you want to follow Jesus in the big moments of life, you have to follow him in all the little ones. That's how you come to know his voice. So if you're looking down the road at what God's calling you to and you're thinking, how do I get there? Follow him faithfully throughout your day today and tomorrow and the next day. If you don't know what God is calling you to down the road, don't worry. He cares more that you follow him today. If you follow him today, you'll be where you need to be when you're down the road. So what does all this have to do with our youth ministry programming? I want our students, I'm looking at you, Keaton, I'm looking at you, Ellie, I'm looking at you, Becca, I'm looking at you, Lydia. I want our students to know the hope and purpose and fulfillment of answering Jesus' call. That is foremost for me. This is part of why I'm really excited about our upcoming summer mission trip. I believe that this trip will expose our students to the needs of people outside the St. Louis metropolitan area. I believe this trip will teach our students the value of service and evangelism, strengthen the relationships between me, our students, and our youth volunteers. And, and those are gonna be essential for moving forward in ministry and discipleship. I believe it'll challenge our students to use their gifts in their immediate context of home, church, and community, and equip our students to articulate their faith and articulate the gospel. I think this trip will be a place for our students to grow an understanding of God's calling for them and to build rhythms and habits of following Jesus. As you probably noticed as I shared my story, I believe God uses camping ministries to reach young people. This is why I'm so excited to spend a week with our students at summer camp at 
Clover Point. And that, by the way, the dates on that, they're out there. It's July 9th through 15th. And I'm super excited as we, we take that intentional time to grow together and challenge one another with his, God's word and, and join together in worship and fellowship. So what about you? What about you? How can you partner with our youth ministry this year? First of all, please pray. I know it's cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. Please pray. Pray for our students so they'd experience God's power in their lives and obey his calling. Pray for our youth ministry leaders, and I include myself, that God would strengthen them and guide them as they serve and teach. Maybe God's calling you to support our mission trip financially. We'll have some opportunities in the coming months for you to do that. Maybe God's calling you to be a counselor at camp. Listen to that calling. Listen, I'd love to talk with you about it if that's something that you feel like God's putting on your heart. Please come talk to me. I'd love to talk. So in conclusion, I want to extend a challenge. And here's the challenge. Let the good news of the gospel change the way you think about sin and about the things of God. Do whatever you need to do to follow Christ more closely. You will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's a promise from Jesus. Don't grow weary as you fish for people. Jesus is the one that brings the catch. And because of that, we don't have to give up. Don't give up. Would you pray with me? Dear God, thank you for your word. Father, change our hearts. Change our minds. Let us be people who are motivated not by your wrath, but by your mercy. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts in order that we may know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance for us, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Strengthen us to follow you more closely. Show us the things that cause us to lag behind. By your grace, remove from us whatever makes us unwilling to go where you have gone. Thank you for your promise that we will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life if we follow you. Thank you that following you is where true purpose and fulfillment are found. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.